0: Welcome to the REI Foundation Podcast, where we cover all the steps and strategies to make your real estate dreams a reality.
1: Now your hosts, Jason and Peely.
0: Well, hello again, and welcome to another edition of the Real Estate Investing Foundation Podcast. We have a super amazing episode today for you because we have Tim Bratz on the episode. Tim, welcome.
1: Jason, appreciate you having me, buddy. Excited to be here.
0: So a little bit more about Tim. Tim Bratz is the CEO and founder of CLE Turnkey Real Estate, a real estate investment company that acquires and transforms distressed commercial and apartment buildings into high-performance investment assets for their own portfolio. Working in real estate, Tim has learned how to build a passive business and create a residential income that allows him to live the lifestyle of his choice. He's here to educate and empower others to become financial-free through real estate and it talks even more to that because tim is coming to us from florida today when he in fact lives up in ohio just because this is the business he's built so tim thanks so much for coming on and uh if we could just start back where was the start and why did you get started in real estate
1: yeah yeah um well again thanks for having me appreciate all the value and content that you put out there man so excited to be here um so I, I was going through, I'm 33 years old now, I was going through college when the market was going gangbusters, 03 to 07, um, back to the last turn. And so, you know, what motivated a 20-year-old kid back then was making money. And people said, if you want to make money, get involved in real estate. So I uh, actually moved out to your neck of the woods. I lived in New York City, uh, Park Slope, Brooklyn for after I I graduated from college and became a commercial real estate agent. So I would represent a business looking for a second location or I'd find, I'd I'd find, you know, empty retail space represent the the uh, landlord and market to different businesses to come into that location. And uh, I, I brokered a lease that was 400 square feet in Greenwich village and it was $10,000 a month with a 4% annual increase uh, over a 12 year lease term and I did the math on it, and I was like, "Holy smokes, man! This guy's going to make almost two million dollars over the next twelve years for doing something at one point in time um, off this little four hundred square foot space. Not even, you know, the other seven retail spaces or fifteen stories of apartments above it." And I realized pretty quickly that I was on the wrong side of the coin. I needed to own real estate instead of broker real estate. And so I uh, I moved down to Charleston, South Carolina, and um, just out of on a, on a Wim didn't know anybody there, just heard good things about it. Wanted a better quality of life and lifestyle and uh, better weather. And so, moved down to Charleston, South Carolina. And um, when I was down there, just you know, it was 08, 09, so it's right as the market was shifting. And I, you know, went through this analysis paralysis phase. I, I studied everything, went to a bunch of seminars, spent a lot of money on. on um, you know, coaching and seminars and all that kind of stuff and uh, realized I wasn't going to learn how to swim by reading about swimming in a book. I needed to actually jump in the water. And um, I I decided I was going to go buy a house. So this is at 09. Yeah. Like it was, I don't know, almost, almost 10 years ago, I think next month um, or like April, I think of 2019, I, I bought this house or I'm sorry, April, 2009, I bought this house for the first time and I didn't have any money, had about I don't know eight grand or something saved up. I'm a punk, twenty-three year old kid. Don't know what I'm doing, and I got a credit card with a three thousand dollars limit. So I called up my credit card company, asked them to increase my limit um, to a hundred thousand dollars. They laughed at me, and uh, but they, but they still give me fifteen thousand. And so I found the cheapest house on the entire MLS, bought the property, fixed it up, put up my own sweat equity into it, and uh, you know didn't know how to sell it. But I went and knocked on some doors, found a neighbor who was willing to buy it, and. Um, made about $13,000 after all closing costs and everything was all said and done in about 75 days. So again, worst real estate economy in 80 years, you know, um, my first property I've ever done. I'm 23 years old. I don't know anything about this stuff and I'm making money doing it. So I did it again, did it again, did it again. And then eventually, you know, got heavy into wholesaling houses, single family homes. And you end up meeting people who maybe have, money but they don't have the time or the skill set to go out and buy real estate and um, was able to work out a deal with them where they put up the money I did all the work and we they were you know my essentially my first private money investors and ended up uh, developing some good relationships that way kind of did a lot of retail flips did a lot of turnkey single-family rental flips and was selling those and then um just kind of fell into apartment buildings found a smoking deal about six years ago on an eight unit apartment building and um couldn't pass it up so i bought that and i saw that it had more scale to it i saw that it had you know for me and my ambitions and my goals it it just it was a better fit than than single family flips or single family rentals um i i liked that i could flip an apartment building and if it didn't sell i didn't really care because it still had cash flow coming in you know i'm i'm really bad with with uh the retail flips because um we just i i i couldn't stand the pressure and the stress of having the carrying costs and a non-performing asset um on the books and I got real anxious when it was whenever it was time to sell and I felt like I had a uh, the buyer was in more of a um a negotiating point than I was as the seller um when I was, when I flipped retail houses with apartment buildings I didn't care I could wait for the best offer to come through and I could hold out for that offer and if it didn't come I don't care because I still have the cash flow coming in and um uh, so I just like that aspect of it. And then I like the, the long-term legacy wealth aspect. You know, it's something that I think a lot of us get into real estate for is that passive income and that residual income. And then we get stuck in this transactional mode of, of trading our time for money and flipping a house and having to go do it again in order to get paid again. And um, with apartment buildings, it wasn't like that. You know, I could actually build long-term wealth where, uh, I mean, you think about it like this, you can buy something, and somebody else is going to pay to operate that building, that your your tenant, you know, and they're paying your debt service, they're paying your mortgage for you, and they're putting cash flow in your pocket. To me, that was just like plus the tax benefits and and everything that um, come with with owning long term rental real estate. It was like it was a no brainer for me. So I just doubled down on that, and you know, today. I'm um, an overnight success story, you know, <laughs> I got yeah, almost 2000 units overnight success story, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, I got almost 2000 units across five different States right now. And, um, not only do I own passive assets, but I, I have a team in place that runs everything for me. So, um, I'm pretty much involved in just like raising money and the finance side on the acquisition. But if I wanted to stop buying today, I could stop buying today. My, my whole portfolio would run as it is, but I have, I have higher ambitions.
0: So, there's so much to dissect there but one of the few things or first things you said there was analysis by paralysis that you were just taking course after course finding mentor after mentor and, and you couldn't really get yourself out of that you know washing machine effect of just getting going but you talk a, a bunch about mindset for people out there that that are just in that phase where they just keep thinking they have to learn more to, or find that next next key ingredient to get them off the sidelines what what enabled you to really just get started what was that trigger point what's something that you really it- Stood out it, it,
1: for me, it was, it was just like a pain point It's like, Oh my God, how much more can do I need to study on this stuff before I can actually get, go out and do it. And so it was like, I- I'm just going to learn how to do this, you know, by, by, you know, getting punched in the teeth a couple of times. And let me just learn it that way, you know, versus trying to, again, read about it in the book. Uh, it's different, you know, you got to actually go out and do it. And so for me, it was more of just, let's just get this thing done. And it kind of ripping off a bandaid almost, you know, you're so scared and so fearful, but at the end of the day, you're like, I just need to do it. And, you know, I was at a point in my life where I'm 23 years old. I don't have a wife. I don't have kids. I don't have the responsibilities. And so if it didn't work out for me, I was like, who cares? I'll go back to, you know, I'll go find a job or something, you know, I'm employable. Um, and so, so for me, it the, the, the positive outweigh the negative of what could happen. You know, I think a lot of people get into real estate or they want to get into real estate. And there's a lot of what ifs it's like, what if, uh, what if I lose money? What if I go bankrupt? What if uh, I get sued? Like, and, and a lot of people focus on those things. And I think that's a natural tendency for human beings. You know, like we have these fear instincts inside of us because, you know, I don't know, 10,000 years ago, we need to make sure we didn't get eaten by a saber tooth tiger. And, you know, like that fear was a real thing back then. Right now you don't have a, a life or death, you know, type of, type of uh, circumstance. And so fear is a lot of, it's, it's fake, you know? And so we put these things in our, in our, in our mind where it's, uh, what if, what, what if this happens? What if that happens? What if, you know, but what if you took the faithful side of it? What if you were more positive and you said, you know, what if I get crazy rich? What if I build legacy wealth? What if I could retire from my job in the next 24 months? What if I was the patriarch of my family that my great, great, great grandkids looked up the family tree and they said, Hey, because of what he did, we're in a great position as a family as a whole. And, and we're able to um, do more, give more, be more, you know, have more, you know, all those different things because of great, 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 great grandpa, you know, or great, 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 great grandma. And so for me, I just kind of—I've been focusing more on that, and because that outweighs any sort of short-term fear that could set in, um, I'm I'm able to just keep on moving forward. You know, keep on moving the ball forward, keep on thinking bigger. I don't let you know the 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 what ifs on the negative side get in my way.
0: See, I love that because. We, we hear it so much, right? It's that worst case scenario. And, and very few times is that worst case scenario actually come true, right? Like I'm going to go bankrupt. Well, okay. How many things would have to go wrong for you to actually go bankrupt? Maybe right. you, you get a, a little bit of a learning lesson and a mistake you make along the way, but very few times is going to be that worst case scenario. And hopefully if you, if you take much attention to that learning lesson, it helps propel you even further along down your real estate journey. So yeah, thank 100%. You, that's awesome. And so fast forwarding to today, if you were to walk into an elevator and uh, someone said, Hey, what do you do? What's, what's your elevator pitch for what you do today? Uh,
1: so, so I'm, I'm very like nonchalant. Um, I'm a big believer in not, not chase. Like I think there's, I think there's two techniques. And for me, I'm always looking for deals. And I'm always looking for money. Right. And, yep. and, and me personally in my business, first of all, if you're if you're in real estate, those are the only two things that matter. Those are the only two things that generate revenue: finding deals and finding money. If you have those two skill sets, it doesn't matter what the real estate economy looks like. Like right now, it's hard to find deals, but it's pretty easy to find money. Six years ago, really easy to find deals, very difficult to find money. And so if you have those two skill sets and you could do those regardless of the economy, it doesn't matter what happens to the housing market, you're gonna be able to go make money in real estate because. You can do the two revenue-generating activities that you need to 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 have, or that you need those two skill sets that you need to have in order to be successful in real estate. And so, for me, I'm always reminding my team of that. that. And for me, I'm always looking for money. I'm very intentional about talking to investors, talking to people, asking them how the how the market's treating them. But I'm not doing it in a way where it's hunting strategy. When you hunt a prey, what happens to the prey? Runs away, right? When you when you fish. You put the lure in the water and they come to you. So I'm always planting seeds that will eventually sprout. And and for me, I you know I I if I met you on an elevator and you asked me what I do, I'd say, hey, I, I buy apartment buildings and um you know, you know looking to build that long term legacy wealth for my family and and uh, for my employees. You know, I pay my employees profit share too. And so. Eventually, you know, if, I, if you just say real estate, people assume you're a real estate agent, right? Or they assume that you're flipping houses on HGTV, one of those two things. And so I, I let them know that I buy apartment buildings to build long-term legacy wealth. And that's just a different conversation. It tweaks their mind in a little bit different way. And then they start you know, going down this, this uh, trail of, well, what do you do? How do you do it? Ah, I own some apartment buildings in Ohio, South Carolina, Florida, Georgia, Texas. And they're like, what? what? You know, and then all of a sudden, they don't know what the hell you're talking about how do you do that? Well, you know, how'd you get into that? And, you know, it just kind of goes down um, that, that trail. And so I do a little bit of coaching and stuff too. So I tell people that I train other people on how to do it. So, you know, that kind of naturally progresses into um, meeting people who either want to go out and find deals or people who are like, man, that's way too much work. Let me just go and invest in your projects. And so that's just naturally the way that the conversation um, goes. But as far as like raising private money, you can ask a simple question of, Hey, how's the market treating you, you know, and then just wait for the, wait for the, the, the laundry list and the avalanche of complaints about how it's up and down and back and forth. And now they got to ride it out and we went through this thing, at, you know, over the that last quarter of 2018 and now it's bounced back a little bit, but everybody's fearful that it's going to drop again. And now they're looking for other things to put their money into. Oh, well, guess what? We have a fixed asset, something that's tangible. You can see, feel and touch that you can invest in. You know, you can either buy properties from me or if you want to partner up, I don't ask people to lend me money. I ask them to partner up with me. And so um, if you, if somebody asks you to borrow money, well, the natural tendency is let me run away, you know? Um, but if you ask somebody to partner up on, on a real estate deal, everybody loves joint venturing. Everybody loves partnering up. Everybody loves, you know, feeling like they have a piece of the action. And so that's, how my, how my typical conversation goes is, Hey, if you ever want to partner up on some real estate, you bring money, I'll do the work and we'll figure out something that's, that's fair for both of us. Um, and make sure that you get a good return on your investment and maybe even some upside in the deal. And so that's how I structure my deals. Anyways, I pay a fixed return plus a little bit of back end equity. So that way they feel like they're like they're involved. And it's, you know, it's icing on the cake too. If you're going to help me make a hundred thousand or a million dollars, let's say, You know, I think it's fair that I I kick the investors a a little bonus of an extra hundred grand or something on their, on their money too. So,
0: yeah, that's awesome. And so I want to dive into that, but now if someone's sitting here and saying, Hey, listen, I want to do what Tim does, but I'm going to sit in the sideline because I I think we're at a high point in the market and I'm going to wait for the downturn. What would be your response to that?
1: Yep. Great question. So we're obviously, you know, at the peak, right. Or, or somewhere around the crest of this thing. Um, and that's, and that's, uh, something that would, would fear people would be fearful about, right? Me, I look at the other side of the coin. So for me, one, everybody says, real, you know, location, location, location. That's number one thing in real estate. That's number two for me. Number one for me is wholesale, 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 always buy at a wholesale price. There's motivated sellers, regardless of what the market looks like. And like right now I, I picked up a thousand units in the past 12 months. All of them, if you're familiar with cap rates or return on investment in commercial real estate, all thousand units were in A and B class areas, and I'm at between 11 to 17 percent cap rate based on my on my um, purchase price and renovation cost. So to say that there's not deals out there is nonsense. There's absolutely deals out there. They're in your own backyard. Um, think about the four the four D's of motivated sellers: death, disease, divorce, and disaster. Right. So death somebody inherited a property who's a, a a ballet dancer in Los Angeles right now and they don't want anything to do with an apartment building in Sheboygan that's Wisconsin no no no, no. <laughs> say, it's, awesome. <laughs> it's, it's not, not a true story but um but I mean but it's it's like I bought I bought a property there's there's a guy that I knew when I was in the single family realm there was a guy that I knew he was actually lived in San Francisco he's in the tech business his parents passed away he grew up in this you know, 1,100 square foot bungalow, little property in in the Midwest, in Cleveland, Ohio, and um he doesn't give a shit if if the property is, you know, if he gets sixty thousand dollars for the house or seventy five thousand dollars for the house. For him, it doesn't matter because one, it's not that much money to an executive in the tech industry in California, and secondly. When you think about the headaches and everything that you got to go through of listing the property, paying for the heating, paying for the taxes, paying for the insurance, hoping that the pipes don't freeze throughout the winter time. Like you guys just got slaughtered with a bunch of cold weather up there. Right. And, um, same with, same with us in Cleveland. And so when you think about all that stuff, it's worth taking a price reduction because you're able to solve a problem that's more important than the price, you know? So so for me, you know, I mean, there's, there's always people, there's always probate deals out there. Um, I did buy a house in Charleston, South Carolina, where the, the couple could not finalize their divorce until all their, all their assets were liquidated. So they had it. That's a motivated seller, right? <laughs> like I want to get rid of this person. I, I got to get rid of this house first in order to get rid of them. Let me just take a price cut. And I got, I don't know, probably about uh, 40% or 50% price reduction because of that. So when you think about it from that perspective, there's always deals like Panama City, Florida, you know, Panama City, Florida got crushed by Hurricane Michael back in the fall. There's deals all over Panama City, like some deals, you know, there's people getting their insurance claims and they're like, let me just take my insurance money and sell the property and not have to deal with this anymore. So there's a little bit of that going on. So that's a disaster, you know? So regardless of the economy, regardless of what's going on with the housing market, you got to realize that there's always deals out there. Um, goes back to the skill set that I mentioned also. If you can get good at finding deals, you're going to find, you know, wholesale price Opportunities, um, so that's that's another uh, piece. And then uh, I had something else for you too. What, what the heck else was it? It was. um,
0: I'll let it come back to you because I'll, I'll jump. Yeah, in. Finding yeah. Tools. Let it come back to me. Yeah. So finding deals, you, you talked about how effective you've been finding these a thousand units over the last uh, twelve months or so. How are you finding deals? What, what's your go-to source? And I know there's ne- never one. Just okay, straight to the point, exactly. So,
1: what you so a lot of the gurus will tell you this is another mindset thing. You got to understand kind of the mindset of other people in this one. So a lot of gurus tell you, go and build broker relationships with commercial real estate brokers. And so what, what, what I think a lot, what stops a lot of people from getting into apartment buildings or getting into commercial real estate is, is this one, it's a different language. So instead of using a return on investment, you say cap rate, instead of using after repair value, you say stabilized value. So it's, it's no different it's just different verbiage, but it throws people off track. Um, and they think that they need to either go take some courses at Wharton school of business, or they need to, you know, have, have these initials or this commercial licensure, or they, they come from generational, the great, great granddaddy already owned real estate. And that's why they can get into real estate. Like that's a bunch of bullshit. Like you can get into real estate uh, and get into commercial real estate without having any of that stuff. I'm, I'm, from the residential realm. I just kind of was able to push through that barrier because, um, it, 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 but it feels more complicated, right? It's, it's actually simpler than than it, seem, than it seems. So, but what you need to understand is that residential real estate has a lot of rules and regulations in place to protect unsophisticated landowners. Meaning there's a little old lady who inherited her property, her home, because, uh, or, or, or her husband just passed away. She's the only one on title right now. She's never had to deal with anything in the finances of the household. And we need to make sure that that little old lady does not get taken advantage of by some big, bad real estate investor or, or agent, right? So in the residential realm, there's unsophisticated landowners who come into property ownership. In the commercial realm, it's assumed that everybody is a sophisticated investor. If you're buying for investment purposes, You're probably a big boy or a big girl, and you should know better, right? So there's not as much rules and regulation involved. And when you think about that, that's the same thing with brokers as well. In a residential realm, a a real estate broker has to list a property and put it on the MLS within 72 hours. At least that's how it is in Ohio. Um, I I know that's how it is in a couple other states. In the commercial realm, if a real estate agent gets a listing, a commercial broker gets a listing, they don't have to put it on the MLS. They don't have to put it on LoopNet. And so what you need to realize is that they're going to take the path of least resistance and pad their pocketbook as much as possible, right? Because they want to earn both sides of the commission. They don't want to have to co-broke. They can just keep it as a pocket listing for 30 days, 60 days, or however long until they can shop it on their own. So there's not many, there's not many people who are buying property in a large scale in any given city, um, So there's probably 20 or 30 buyers in any given city who buy majority of the commercial real estate. The broker knows those 20 or 30 people. So what they're doing is they're picking up the phone and actually calling those 20 or 30 uh, uh, investors or developers. If you see a deal that hits the market through a broker on LoopNet, it's because the top 20 buyers in town all said no to that deal. Okay? So it's usually a, a crappy deal. So how do you find good deals? One, you can wait for those deals to just sit on the market for six months, 12 months, 18 months, and eventually the landlord will realize it's things overpriced. And um, I've gotten deals that way. I just bought a 35 unit office building um, for $17 per square foot because it sat on the market for three years. And I bought it off the MLS, but it it sat on the market for three years. So there's deals out there like that, but they need to sit on the market for a long time what I've done is I've just found ways to take the exact same strategies I use in residential real estate investing and parlay those into commercial real estate investing. So a lot of people do direct mail. There's no reason you couldn't do direct mail for commercial real estate. Um, a lot of people build relationships with CPAs and attorneys and management companies for residential deals. I do the exact same thing for commercial properties. Um, uh, you know we're, we're we're driving for dollars the same way that you drive for dollars and look for houses with tall grass and boarding up windows. we look for buildings with tall grass and boarded up windows um, dialing for dollars and calls instead of calling for sale by owners, we call for rent by owners and we say, hey, I'm not interested in renting your place I'm interested in buying it. Do you have any interest in selling and the conversation, oh, this is the part, dude, good question because it led me back to what I was going to say. The conversation to have with sellers today this is a nugget, so write this down is is if you have any intention of selling this property over the next 10 years, of exiting this property in the next 10 years, today is the most money you will ever get for that property. Think about that. Like, interest rates are going up. Lending's going to tighten. We're at the peak of a market. So the only place that this market can go is in a downward trajectory, right? So if that seller wants to sell that property, has any intention of either exiting the property or retiring in the next 10 years. Today's the most money that they're ever going to get for it. Now that gets them in the door, gets me in the door in having a conversation about them selling the property. And then you can have a, a deeper conversation of, listen, the building needs this, this, and this, this, this much work the lending environment's going to tighten up. It's going to change. And, you know, I can't buy this thing for a retail price. I still need a discount, on it. you know? So like you can, you can navigate the conversation in that regard. Um, or see if it's a value add, if it is a great deal, then go ahead and buy it at whatever price they're asking. But that'll get a lot of sellers off the fence and get them thinking more strategically about, Oh man, maybe I should sell this apartment building. And so something that wasn't first initially on the market, you can, you know, uh, uh Flex the, the seller's mindset a little bit on potentially selling by having that type of conversation with them.
0: I love that. And to Tim's point, these strategies absolutely work because our last two deals have been through one through a management company, and the other one was we just called a for rent sign on an apartment building. And yeah, just picked yeah, off just a whim, someone saying, Actually, the, someone at our meetup said, Hey, have you ever uh, just called the uh, like the white papers, like the like uh, you know, the newsletters? And I was like, He's like, you know, it's probably old people still put their stuff like in the paper. And I was like, Yep. No. Funny is that, and it's just true, right? They're not into this online savvy source where they're putting it up on ten different sites. It's three in the yep. they just called something up that was an apartment building. Strategy worked, and yep. the angle there you're you're buying across a number of states, various markets. You, you see both effects, right? Some people say I, I just want to be the king of this market. I'm just going to hone in. I'm just going to buy strictly in this you know some market of this city. How are you being so effective in various states, and why are you taking that approach?
1: Great question. So um, I believe wholeheartedly in going deep into one market versus going wide in several markets. The only reason that I am in multiple markets is because I have a, a local joint venture partner who knows that market inside and out. They go deep. They already are super, super deep in that market. And then I partner up with them because I have a balance sheet. I can raise money. I can handle the back on like the backside management. We have a big management company in Cleveland. And so i can I can bring strategies in that regard, but my local joint venture partner um, has to know the market inside and out. <clears throat> they have to be an expert and a ninja at that marketplace and know street by street um, what's going on in that market and uh, know how to deal with contractors, know how to deal with personnel and operations and those kinds of things. We can handle a lot of the administrative side um, from from anywhere in country you know so up in cleveland ohio we manage everything remotely so we can handle utilities and marketing of units and signing of leases and rental applications and rent collection and you know maintenance phone calls and all that kind of stuff and work orders um but we need somebody local to handle move-ins and move-outs and and open houses and uh you know just make sure the contractors are doing doing their job and so um we usually have an on-site like superintendent And then we have a local joint venture partner who's only compensated based on the performance of the property. That's a key with, with uh, joint venture partners. And, um, we don't pay fees or, or, or anything. We don't nickel and dime the project and fees or acquisition fees or asset management fees or anything like that. I've, I've designed my joint ventures where everybody, including myself and my team were only compensated, um, for getting the property performing, meaning we don't take any of these, these upfront acquisition fees and we don't actually make any money until I I have a little bit of a different syndication model. I don't buy something and sit on it for, you know, five, seven years and then try to exit it. Mm -hmm. I buy something, force appreciation through a value add process. Um, And then we refinance usually 12 to 18 months and we cash out all of our investors. And then, and so at that time when we refinance, that's when everybody gets paid. So uh, the investors get their money back. Local joint venture partner gets paid from some refi proceeds and ongoing cash flow from then on, and then we get paid from refi proceeds and ongoing cash flow. So, it's a way that we're all in the same boat, rowing in the same direction, versus kind of working across from the table from each other. You know, where um, a lot of times syndicators will will take an acquisition fee and they'll take an asset management fee regardless of the property's performance. I don't think that's fair to the investor. You know, um. And then, and then at the same time, it's not fair to the, the local operator for the investor to get 80% equity in the deal if the local operator's, you know, taking care of a pretty heavy lift in that. So um, we structure it in a way where the investors get paid regardless of the property's performance. We don't make any money until it gets stabilized and, and refinanced. And then at that, at that, you know, 18 month turnaround time, um, we, we keep about 90% of the equity in the deal. The investors got paid a, a double digit preferred return over the course of that 18 months and then so they made a great return on their investment regardless of the property's performance and then they keep a little bit of equity you usually give them about 10% equity in perpetuity which is infinite return for them. So it's a, it's a different strategy uh, but it works out really really well for us and, um, and it's different from what a lot of syndicators do.
0: Sure. Let me let me dive in a little bit more just to make sure I fully understand this. So the, the investors, the we'll say the limited partners have a preferred return and then a split on equity. And then after that twelve or eighteen month mark, uh when you refi them out, uh basically you're giving them back all their money plus plus more at some point. And then yeah. they're still staying in at a lower equity position. Is that correct?
1: So yeah, so it's it's um and I don't so mean, let me, let me, yeah, let Sure. Let me tell you. um, So I got this model essentially from, you know, single family flips. You know, when you go and flip a single family house, you need to be all in for 65 cents on the after repair value. Right. So on a, on a house that's, you're going to sell for a hundred thousand dollars. You need to be all in for $65,000 purchase price, renovation, holding costs, all that. So I thought, why don't we do that? Like I'm not a retail buyer. Why would I ever pay a retail price for an apartment building? And, and um, so what I do is I look for these value add apartment buildings where I can be all in for 65 cents or less of the after repair value. So if a building's worth $10 million, I'm all in for six and a half million bucks. And, and what I can do is I I know that you can just reverse engineer this whole thing because it's all based on the income approach, right? With apartment buildings. So it's how much income, how much expenses, what's the NOI, and what's the multiple in that market at the cap rate that things are appraising for. So it's very predictable of what your stabilized value is going to be. So now I know it's going to be worth $10 million. So if I need to be all in at 60 cents or 65 cents, that's 6.5 million bucks. And it's very predictable what you need to spend on the property. You know, if it's a hundred units, I need to put $10,000 per unit in. It's going to be a million dollars. That means my maximum allowable offer is $5.5 million. You following me here? I am. Cool. So 5.5 million. Now let's say this thing is not performing or it's not, it's not cash flowing enough Mm -hmm. to, Pay back my investors out of cash flow, which is how most syndicators do it. Right, it's, it's the only way that they can do it. Well, the other way that you can pay your your investors that's still uh, kosher with the banks, where they're or they're still okay with it, is by um, paying them out of an interest reserve. You can't take it out of the cash flow if there's if it doesn't meet the debt service coverage ratio. Um, but you can you can fund an interest reserve and pay them out of an interest reserve. And so that's how I've how I've done it. So if I realize that. I'm borrowing 1.5 million dollars, and it's going to take a year to stabilize this thing. Um, and the property's not going to cash flow enough to pay that one that that 150 thousand dollars, 10 percent pref that I pay my investors. I'll over borrow 150 grand. Does that make sense? So sure. instead of being all in for one or for 5.5, or per, purchase price of 5.5, maybe I'll be 5.35. So that way, I have an extra hundred thousand dollars buffer there that I can then take from an interest reserve, pay my investors. They're getting checks every single month or quarter, however we, we designate it, um, over the course of that year. And then when I go to refinance at a 75% loan to value, I'm able to take $7.5 million. Six and a half million of it goes to pay off my short-term loan and my investors. And then, so my investors are made whole. They don't have any money. Now it's just house money in play, right? And we got a million dollars of refi proceeds to carve up. So my, I then give my investors an extra 10% bonus equity in the deal. Um, so so they're uh, uh they're gonna get a hundred thousand dollars of that million dollars of refi proceeds and then they get 10% of all cash flow and perpetuity. And I and I put long-term debt, 10, 12 year debt in place because I'm I'm building legacy wealth. I want to hold this thing forever. So then I put um they get 10% of all the cash flow for as long as we have it, and then you know, if there's you know, if a loan amount seven and a half, it's worth 10 million bucks, there's two and a half million dollars worth of equity. 10% of that equity is theirs too. So it builds their balance sheet by another $250,000. And so it's a win for me because I'm doing a lot of work, but I also get to keep 80, 90% of the equity, um, with the joint venture partners, my whole team and everybody else who gets paid for, for going through that significant lift and sponsoring the loans and all that kind of stuff. And then it's a great win for my investors because they're getting a fixed return Very predictable. They know exactly how much they're going to make on their money versus it sitting there and potentially not getting any return for three, four years, you know, and then getting a big windfall when it, when it sells. But the reality is investors want to build legacy wealth, that long-term wealth as well. Um, And so this works out better for them. So they get a predictable rate of return plus upside potential. And then there's velocity on their capital. Whereas if they, if they invest in a traditional syndication model, they can invest in one to two deals over the course of 10 years. They invest with me. They can invest in probably seven or eight different deals over the course of 10 years and have 10% across seven or eight different apartment buildings in different marketplaces, be more diversified and make 10% uh, interest on their money the entire time too. So it's, it's a smoking deal for them. It's a smoking deal for me. Um, But it's a heavy lift. There's a lot of work that goes into this. And you got to find distressed deals, distressed properties, or distressed management, distressed sellers. Um, But if you're good at finding deals, you're good at finding money, you can make it happen.
0: See, that's awesome. And to your point there, there's a lot of different syndication models out there. So you can find the one that works for you. And also when you do refi, the, the important part is to have another smoking deal for your investors to go into. If you yeah. get money back and say, Hey, we got another great deal for you there. So yep. you, you talked about third party management. You're, you're actually handling the third party management yourself uh, besides your boots in the ground group, but you are handling yourself. What does the rest of your team look like?
1: Yeah. So I have uh, my investment team. There's seven of us now. I just hired two more people. So uh, me, I'm CEO, chief marketing officer, CEO. I I pretty much just raise money um, and put the right people in in, in the right seats. Uh, I have a COO, chief operating officer. He runs all the day-to-day operations. So like he handles everything. Um, if you don't have a COO, it's like a critical piece of your business. Make, like if you ever read the book traction, you need to have like the visionary and the integrator and having an integrator who can then, you know, put your, put your thoughts and ideas into play and execute on them. It's a big deal. Like, like us as CEOs, we're great starters, not real good finishers, you know, uh, a lot of great ideas. Um, but how do we execute that? And having somebody who compliments, um, you know, like some of your weaknesses, but doesn't dance on your strengths is, is a, an integral part of, uh, of a good partnership or a good CEO, COO, um, uh, setup. So I have a COO and then there's, there's three people on my team, acquisitions, uh, project management and like asset portfolio management. So my portfolio manager, um, just manages the management company. So he goes out and just reviews the financials, on a daily basis, looks at our, our delinquency rate, looks at our occupancy rate, and just you know, goes in kicks the table with the management company um, on a daily, weekly basis to make sure things are moving along. My acquisitions guy is just looking at deals 24-7. Um, I, my project manager is managing contractors and GCs, um, and just from a high level, making sure that projects are staying on time and on budget. Um, so that, and that, that's, that's pretty much that whole team. And then, uh, and then I have a, a chief investment officer I just brought him on um, my business attorney for the past six years, been a friend of mine since high school, super sharp guy. And he handles all the um, uh, syndication documentation and, and, SEC compliance and puts all the legal stuff together and, um, uh, and then handles like investors relations and stuff too. So if I meet somebody who wants to invest, usually I, I uh, make that introduction to him. And then he shares whatever projects we have in the pipeline. And uh, and then he takes it from there. And then uh, and then I have an executive assistant who handles, you know, just kind of booking of flights and hotels and travel and uh, making copies. And, and she does a lot of marketing stuff too for us. So um, that's my investment team. And then we have the property management company that has, I think, I don't know, 12 employees, uh, mostly administrative. So it's mostly, you know, office admin, people doing leasing um, or marketing of properties online, setting up utilities online, um, onboarding of new properties and apartment buildings and new tenants and all that kind of stuff. So that's, uh, that's it. Yeah. I mean, I started out with just me uh, four years ago, hired an assistant. They end up watching you, hearing you, seeing you, and eventually they can start doing a lot of things that you're doing. And so, that person ended up being my portfolio, my asset manager. And then I hired somebody else as, um, and, and he ended up being my COO. And then I hired somebody else as an intern. And that guy ended up being my acquisitions guy, you know? And so everybody is kind of like elevated up as they've, as they've uh, been with me for a few years. And, um, uh, it, it didn't just like happen where I had a team to just start that way. Um, I hire an assistant and then as I figure out their skill set and what they're really good at and, um, then I find the right seat for them sure. in, my, in my organization.
0: What has been key for you in hiring successfully?
1: <clears throat> um, it's a good question. So I do, for, for me, everybody I've ever hired, other than my executive assistant that I just hired uh, in December, has always been like a friend or somebody I already knew. And so it came from either a referral or I already knew them and, um, I already knew their work ethic. I knew their integrity. I knew that they did what they said they were going to do. I knew that they followed through. I knew that they did the right thing. And so for me, uh, I'd put it out there and I, I'd, I'd, I'd be watching some people and I saw some, like my COO, I saw his work ethic. He was a, an, uh, if you're looking to hire a COO or somebody to handle your operations, I think the best place to look is an assistant manager in the retail industry. So whether that's a restaurant or a store or my COO came from um, a Cinemark Movie Theater. He ran one of the largest movie theaters in, in Ohio as an assistant manager making $35,000 a year. Um, so they have all the responsibility and all the ability to run a multi-million dollar operation, but they have a ceiling above them. You know, they can't move up because there's a general manager um, who's making the six-figure salary typically in that, in that retail space. And so th- they have all the capabilities of running a big organization and running an operation. Um, but they, but they're lacking usually the pay and the upside long term potential. And so when I said, Hey man, what, what is it going to take to move you over to my company? Cause, I mean, this kid was working eight hours a day there and then he had another full time job. He worked 16 hours a day and I saw his work ethic for years and he was co wholesaling with me too. Um, and so I was like, man, I need to hire this guy <laughs> cause I know if I, I could pay him, um, he'll bring that same work ethic over to my business. And so, uh, what happened is I said, Hey man, how much do you need? He's like, I need three grand a month. I was like, dude, here's $10,000 right now. Quit your job and come over here immediately. And so, um, got the ball rolling. He saw long-term potential and, and, um, and now he's, he's dialed in. So I pay him a, a salary. Um, you know, as far as like compensation, all that stuff, I pay everybody on my team a salary that's enough where they're not stressed about money, where they're not gonna make a stupid decision on you know, uh, operations or what they're gonna do and, or try to steal anything or anything like that. So they have enough money where they're not stressed about money, but not enough money where they're, where they're complacent or content with what they're making. So then I pay them a profit share. I don't give them equity, I give them a profit share based on how well the company performs that year. So if we make $2 million in net profit, and uh, one of the guys on my team has a 5% profit share in the company. He's going to make an extra $100,000. So I pay him usually four grand, three to four grand a month, like $40,000, $50,000 a year in salary. Uh, you can do that in Cleveland, Ohio. You might not be able to do that in Jersey or New York. But um, in Cleveland, Ohio, and a lot of the Midwest and Southeast, like you could probably get away with around a $50,000 salary for, or forty to $60,000, let us say. And then a profit share on top of that so now they're incentivized where they got they're gonna you know triple their income by making sure that the, the company does well the company succeeds and the company's profitable where um, they can make an extra hundred thousand dollars if uh, if everything's moving in the right direction so it's um, it's it's been the best way and I've tried a lot of different compensation plans and it's been it's been tough but um, yeah, that's a couple strategies on, on how to hire. And then I always do a DISC analysis. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with a DISC. It's a behavioral assessment, and it's usually 80% on target on uh, how somebody's going to behave or what their their natural traits and behavioral tendencies are um, in the workplace. And so I, I, I look to find – I figure out what the right – first you want to do an organizational chart of what positions you need. Then you find the right people for those seats. And you'll know – um, the behavioral traits for that seat before you go out and find that, that person to put in there. And so that way you can give them a disc analysis and then make sure that they're a good fit for, uh, for that seat.
0: So you, you've had this... 10-year overnight success, as you call it, right?
1: Dude, I've I've been in real estate for 10 years. I sucked at it for the first seven. I've only been good, maybe even eight. I've only been good for the past two years, man. But that's like what everybody sees, right? That's the compound effect, that uh, that, that, that penny doubling every single day. And people only see the last 10% of it. And they think, oh my goodness, this guy came out of nowhere, dude. I've been shoveling shit for a long time,
0: so. Well, in that note, what's something you're working right now on improving in your business?
1: Um, Good question. So uh,
0: our
1: our biggest thing over the past 12 months and, and this year is focus and saying no to everything that's not an A-class or B-class apartment building. So I bought, I'll give you an example. Where I'm calling you from right now was a vacation rental we bought in Kissimmee, Florida. And I thought it'd be cool to own a bunch of vacation houses all around the country and sexy. And it looks good on the front of the brochure, you know, on the magazine. The issue is they're total pain in the ass to run and operate. And when people go and look for vacation rentals, it's usually at 10 or 11 o'clock at night. They're scrolling through VRBO or Airbnb and sending inquiries and somebody on your team's got to respond, you know, every or on the weekends. So it's a headache for bookings. It's a headache. Um, this is when people are traveling and it's usually nights and weekends and holidays. Right. And so we bought two of these things and I was like, cut the head off the snake. We're not buying anymore. Okay. So that was one learning experience. I bought a C-class apartment building. Um, about a year and a half ago, total pain in the ass to manage and operate. And although numbers look good on paper, what you realize is getting into C-class and D-class type stuff is it, it's a monumental property management uh, um, to overcome. You know, it, it, is, it is unbelievable how much time and effort it takes to manage something that's more C-class or D-class. And so as, as much as the, the numbers look good on paper, long-term, you're gonna have better returns in a B class area where the numbers don't look as good on paper, but it's minimal management and you could scale your operation, scale your business a lot more. So C class apartment buildings out the door, single family flips. We sold our last ones about a year ago. Um, We sucked at that. We were terrible at it. Like the attention to detail that that, uh, we gave those things. It was just like, we try to run it as an operation and need way more attention to detail than a big business could give it. And, um, and so we sucked at it. So we, we stopped doing those. We stopped doing turnkey rentals. We, uh, we bought 270 acres in the Poconos, um, in Milford, Pennsylvania. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's right on the, on the, uh, kind of border of New York and, uh, up from New Jersey a little bit. And so bought 270 acres, we're going to redevelop this land and then settle land, make a million bucks in six months. And a year and a half later, I, I'm fire sailing it. I'm going to make like $60,000 on it, you know, like a total headache, total pain for my team, total time suck. And so for us right now, we've gotten to this point where we've grown, 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 and now we're taking a step back refining. So that way we can grow even that much faster. So that is our primary, um, our primary goal and strategy right now. And you know, our goal is we're, we're at about $150 million of, of assets that we own. And um, got another 125 million under contract right now, closing uh, this quarter, and so we'll be a, just shy of 300, 000, $300 million dollars worth of uh, uh, of assets, and our goal is to hit a, a billion dollars in assets in the next uh, 36 months. You're so,
0: yeah, and I love that, right? So, and anybody listening, if you if you think back 10 years ago, Tim was in a point where he he was just in that paralysis by analysis and just wasn't going to start, but he just said, "I'm just going to get started." And it's never a perfect path, right? You take it, you learn, you redirect, you re- you, know, you do it again, you redirect and continue the path. And from that, you know, within the last three years growing to, you know, 150 with a million in assets with another 125 locked up and you're going to have a billion very shortly. That's what just putting the foot down and just saying, I'm just going after it. That's what can happen. So
1: Jason, you, you, you got, it's crazy. Like, you know, it's, it's beginning of the year. A lot of people just did their goal setting and, and they're, they're real ambitious and they've been watching men who built America. You ever seen that? Yeah. <laughs> it's so good, man. Like it, it, it gets my juices flowing. I watch it every year when I'm doing goal setting between Christmas and new years. And, uh, um, you know, and so people are like, I'm going to, I'm going to light the world on fire this year. And, and you very well might. Um, but, but like even me, I want to pick up 1200 units this past year. I picked up a thousand. So I overestimated what I could accomplish in a year. But here's the thing. If I look back 36 months ago and realize I built my entire portfolio of apartments in the past 36 months, like I, it, it, is, it is flabbergasting what you can accomplish in three to four years. Like You're going to grossly underestimate what you can do in three to five years if you just keep your head down, don't look left, don't look right, just keep on working and knowing that real estate is, is an amazing strategy to build long-term wealth think about it from since the dawn of civilization, wealth has been measured in land ownership and, and it's not an experiment. It's not a new company. It's not a new startup. It's not something that you had to test the marketplace on since the dawn of civilization, people either made money in real estate or they made some money somewhere else and then put their money in real estate. And so it's something that you know you can generate wealth on. You just got to get started, right? You just got to get the ball rolling, do a deal, do another deal. Just get your feet off, like jump in the water, you know, that's how you learn how to swim.
0: I love that. And a few more questions here before uh we yeah, get man. here. What what's your why for doing all this?
1: You know, I think uh um I think your why changes over time. And for me, initially, I told you I was I was a, a kid who wanted to make a bunch of money. And um and, and I, I wanted the the big houses, and I wanted the fancy cars, and I wanted the exotic trips, and um Like that stuff's cool, but if that's your why, if you're looking for fulfillment out of that, or if you're looking for purpose out of that, you're going to be grossly disappointed when you get to that. I've had the Mercedes, I've had big, you know, like all that stuff and, um, the fancy watches and all that. And that's, that's cool. Um, there's no, there's nothing wrong with having luxuries and having nice things in life, especially if you work real hard for it. But if that's your, like your main purpose and your driving factor, you'd be grossly disappointed when you, when you hit that point. Um, So, so for me over time, uh, you know, I had kids and I got a three-year-old and a one-year-old and that's been a big motivating factor. Uh, but it's, it's as far as legacy and legacy wealth is concerned for me, it's not about passing on money or passing on estate or passing on property to my kids. It's passing on mindset. It's passing on education. It's, it's, um. I think you make a bigger impact by, you know, teaching somebody how to fish versus giving them a fish. Right. And, and for me, it's, it's beyond uh, just my kids. Like I want to make an impact on my kids and I want my last name to be on buildings and all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, it's, it's about helping other people for me now. It's more about um, helping other people see themselves and see themselves as, as able to accomplish more than what maybe they could think that they could accomplish just on their own. And, and helping to simplify this whole thing in real estate and realizing that, you know, wealth is like sunshine, you know, it's, 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 it's everywhere. There's, uh, it's, there's so much of it that you getting sunshine, Jason, doesn't take any sunshine away from me. You know, like I can help you make money and build wealth and you know what that does? A rising tide floats all boats. Now we have a better society. Now we have, you know, more people paying taxes on more money, which means taxes are less, which means now everybody, you know, like it, it it pays for roads. It pays for all that stuff. Like it helps everybody. We don't have poor people anymore because there's enough money going around in the entire system and it helps everybody out. So I think by, by helping other people understand wealth and wealth generation, um, one, it, it creates a better society. And, and two, you know, for me, I do the education piece. That's really the driving factor for me. Like I get more fulfillment, not out of seeing my bank account grow. Now it's, it's like I could retire right now, man. And, and have hundreds of thousands of dollars a month coming in. And, you know, by the time all my properties paid off, you know, between me and my partners, we own 90% of all of our property. And, you know, if it appreciates over time and uh, I'm I'm worth a hundred million dollars, you know? It, it, in 30 years from now, if I never did another thing and I just let my properties cash flow uh, a couple hundred thousand dollars a month and, and I uh, let the properties pay itself down over the next 30 years. So it's not about money for me anymore. Once you hit that level, you start looking for different things. And for me, it's more about like showing people. The reason I'm pushing to a billion dollars is to show people it's possible where they can be like, dude, if Tim Bratz can do it, I can do that. You know? Like Tim Bratz, if he's making money, this I'm gonna get rich, you know, because this guy's a clown, you know. So oh, I'm, I'm, you know, like, like I want people to understand that you can have wealth, you can have relationships, you can have good, good health, you can have all these different things, and um, and be successful across everything, and uh, just set an example of what an exceptional life can look like. That's more my driving factor now. I love
0: it. I love it. And if we're talking to your routine throughout the day. Do you have a morning routine that gets you started?
1: Yeah. So I, um, uh, one of the big things for me has been, uh, I've always been a night person. And then as I had kids, I've been more of a morning type person. I'm not as good with my morning routine as I wish I were. Um, but I'm getting better at it. And so one of the things that really helped me out, if there's a, a a strategy you can implement right now in business is time blocking. And so time blocking is just, you know, you schedule an appointment. I schedule an hour to hang out with you and talk on a podcast. I'm not going to pick up a phone call while I'm, while I'm doing this. I'm blocking out an hour of my time to hang out with Jason. So um, the same thing, we do it in business, but we don't do it for like family, you know, or we don't do it for our own personal health or we don't do it for our own uh, mindset, you know, and, and personal education and mental development. And so that's one of the things that I've been implementing. And I'll give you an example of what happened was about, a year and a half ago, I came home from work, we had a family dinner, and it's like 630 at night. My two-year-old at the time, she was a year and a half, two years old, um, comes up to me, da-da-da-da, dada, yeah, play, 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 coming in, asking me to go and play with her in the playroom. And I'm sending a text message after dinner. And, and she's like, Daddy, come play with me. I was like, hang on, babe, why don't you just go play, and I'll be over there in a couple minutes. And then I look down, it's like 10 minutes later, I keep on answering more text messages. I look at the text messages, none of them are important, none of them are urgent, I could probably not even answer them and they would have gone away. And, and and more impact more more profound than that is I just impacted my daughter, who looks at daddy as the man who loves her more than anybody else in the entire world, who she can always go to for security and and happiness and and support and love and affection. And and, and whether I know it or not, whether I knew it or not at the time. I imprinted on her that a cell phone is more important than his little girl. And so I remember sitting back and reflecting on that and being like, dude, what the hell is wrong with me? And like, I, that was like one of those lines, decisions in the sand kind of a thing. And, um, and I, and I decided I was going to time block time for my, for my family from then on. So, uh, about 4:30 on, I'm, I'm out of the office by four, four thirty every single day. And I come home. And I time block, I put my phone upstairs because otherwise it buzzes, it rings, or it, it it starts blinking and and it can be a, a terrible distraction. So I put it upstairs and I go and hang out with my family and I time block time. I don't go to RIA meetings. I don't go to happy hour with, with some other investors. Like I say, hey, I, I got a previous commitment with my family, with my wife, and my kids. And, and so I time block time for my family in that capacity from essentially five o'clock on and I started doing that in the mornings too. So I time block an hour for personal development. I time block an hour for working out. And um, what that's done is because I don't pick up the phone um, outside of essentially a few business, like I'm in the office, I don't know, 10, maybe 11 o'clock in the morning to about four o'clock in the afternoon, four days a week, that's it. That's how much I'm, I'm actually in the office. Now, now, do I answer calls and stuff outside of that? Yeah, sometimes. But Fridays, we have Friday Family Fun Day. And we go and do something goofy with the kids, and we go to the zoo, or we go to putt-putting, or um, we just go to the library, or we go to Chipotle and have lunch. Well, it doesn't matter. We just do something, and the kids choose what that is. But I don't work on Fridays. I don't work Saturdays or Sundays. Do I make a couple phone calls? Maybe, but otherwise, I work. I work Monday through Thursday from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. So I'm able to build my business in 20 to 24 hours a week, and what that made me do is it made me start asking better questions of how I could do that. Um, So if I'm time blocking time in the morning, I'm time blocking time in the evening. How can I run a growth oriented investment company in 24 hours a week? Well, I either got to put systems or processes or people in place in order to do that. And because I'd started doing that, like a lot of people are like, Oh man, I couldn't not take a phone call in my business because I got to close that deal that, that with the phone call that comes in at eight o'clock on a, on a Tuesday night. Well, because I stopped doing that, it made me think more strategically of how to build my business out where somebody else can either take that phone call or they, they make the phone call at, at three o'clock in the afternoon instead of eight, 8 PM or the next day or whatever like those things look like. And because I've been able to ask myself more strategic questions, I've been able to build out a more strategic business, which has put me on this growth trajectory to double my portfolio size every six months, you know, where I could whereas I couldn't have done that. I've grown faster because I work less as crazy as and counterintuitive to as, as it sounds, I, I've grown faster because I'm doing less because I'm more efficient in the time that I have now. Does that make sense? Absolutely so sense it's been, hard. it's been super powerful, man, that, that doing that. And, and I'm happier because my, my wife's happier. My kids are happier. I feel like I'm more present as a, as a parent and as a husband. And I'm able to dedicate more time to me personally, which is super important too. Like you gotta take a walk in the woods. You gotta meditate. You gotta pray, whatever like you do. Um, that's important stuff.
0: I love that. And that's so powerful from just having a family to, to being a business owner, everything there, just beyond powerful. Thank you for that. And just to wrap this up here, if there's an investor listening today, that that's basically on the sidelines saying, I want to get started or I want to ramp up my business. What would be a vital piece for someone to look to start the real estate journey? Where should they start?
1: So, like I sat down a year ago this month with my cousin and he, he always like, he's like, Oh man, I want to get started in real estate. I want, I was like, dude, go buy an F in property. Well, what about this? what go buy an F in property, go buy. A, and so he had a goal of buying five houses or flipping five houses this past year. And because he took action, he did 15. wow Now he's got an office. Now he's going to leave his job in the next 90 days, you know, now he's got a a business partner who counterbalances him. Like they they got deal flow going because he just started. So if you haven't started yet, you got to just get started. And the only way that you're going to learn how to do this business is by actually doing it. You know, like, uh, well, I mean, I mean, there's, there's, there's two ways. First of all, there's, you can go and learn and get and get figured out on your, on your own. You're going to have mentors and coaches, or I think you should absolutely join a mastermind. I think there's one thing that put me on a, on a trajectory that, of success. It was joining a mastermind. That's who told me to hire an assistant four years ago. I was at a mastermind sitting around this table. I'm doing everything, accounting and bookkeeping and uh, sales and finance, raising money and closing on deals. Sometimes even swinging a hammer, collecting rent in cash, you know, and, and in the ghetto in my Mercedes, like, like all sorts of stuff. So I'm doing everything and I can't get out of my own way. And I'm like, what am I doing? And, and I thought I was a, a cool business owner, but all I had was a high paying job, you know? And and they're like, dude, you got to build an actual business. You need to hire an assistant, do this and do. That. And by hiring an assistant, uh, and um, and making a couple strategic moves and joining a mastermind, I tripled my income that year, and I worked less. And then every time, like, like what you realize is like, as you get to different levels, there's another level of problems that you you hit too. It's you know, and and for me right now, it's it could be you know estate planning. It could be. Uh, training your C-level executives. It could be hiring, you know, six-figure, multiple six-figure employees once you get to a certain level. And, and how do you balance the cash flow with that? Like there's different levels and different of business. And as there's different levels of problems in those different levels of business as well. And for me, um, having a mastermind that I could plug into every quarter as I hit that different level or different level of business or different level of problem helped me push through that much faster versus me having to go through the learning curve personally. And get punched in the teeth. Does that make sense? So I think the most important thing anybody could do is join a mastermind that meets on a, you know, three, four times a year basis that you can really get to know the people, high level mastermind, business oriented, strategic thinking, could be real estate, may not be real estate, but people you can talk to about business. And uh, and you might have to pay to get into that. You know, it could be a few thousand dollars up to $50,000. Like I drop a hundred grand a year on different mastermind groups that I'm in. Um, but the resources, the, the connections that you make, the relationships you build and the mindset you develop is just it's unbelievable and it compounds so quickly. So um, one, take action to join a mastermind or find a mentor.
0: Love it. That's awesome. Tim, thank you so much for this. This has been great for people listening out there. What's the best way for them to connect with you or find out more about you?
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm pretty social on, I'm pretty active on social media. So find me on Facebook. I'm always putting out free content on there. Um, uh, I also have, uh, you know, on my investment website, I have a bunch of like blogs and stuff that I write and, uh, videos that I do free content on my website, C L E turnkey.com. And, um, and I, I, I do some coaching. Um, if anybody wants to hit me up on there or like talk or come out to an event or seminar, like I try to take High-level, complicated real estate, commercial real estate investing, and simplify it to a, a third-grade level. And um, the reason I do that is because if it wasn't third grade, man, I, I couldn't do it personally. So I break it down to a super simple level, a very actionable plan on on how to you know get it scale up from maybe residential investing into commercial real estate. And so that's commercialempire.com. dot com. So, um, dude, I appreciate you having me, man. I Love talking with you and and uh, the conversations we had. And Appreciate, again, all the value that you're putting out there and and making an impact on the world, man. Appreciate everything that you do, Jason.
0: Thank you so much. And Tim Brotz, thank you for coming on the show. Highly informational, highly, just high impact of just information that's come out of this podcast today. So if you're listening, take notes, go back, rewind what you heard. There's a lot of actual steps here today for you to get started and really just transform your life in three to four years. Tim Brotz, thank you for so much for being on the show. This is Jason with the Real Estate Investing Foundation podcast. Thank you to all the listeners. We'll talk to you shortly.
1: Appreciate it, bud.
0: Thanks for tuning into the REI Foundation podcast. Check back next time for more awesome tips and strategies
1: to launch your new you in real estate.